Thanks, Tony. We're going to turn our attention to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, one of the classic Christmas texts that gets read at this time of year. And um, we'll turn to that in a second. Let me also say it is, it's good to be with you this morning. It's good to be here today as opposed to where I was last week. Um, I had an uh, epic battle with food poisoning, with Vibrio um, from my last raw oyster. Uh, it started a. Um, it started about a week and a half ago on Thursday, and I didn't turn the corner on that till the following Tuesday, and it's been an absolutely horrendous week in our house, and uh, it's continuing in some other ways as well. Uh, but that's for another time. <laughs> um, we turn our attention here to Isaiah chapter Isaiah chapter nine, where God speaks to the prophet Isaiah to give them hope in the midst of deep darkness that they are experiencing personally, but also deep darkness that they are experiencing as a nation, trying to figure out if there is any hope for them in the midst of the struggles that they are going through as a country. This is what God speaks through Isaiah. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father. We do pray for the outpouring of your spirit, that you would open our hearts to the light who is Christ. Lord, I pray also that you would give me uh, clarity of thought here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a passage like this in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage that's read in church every year at this time, a passage that has different excerpts of it put up on Christmas decoration signs um, all around Uh, And this passage, as well as some of the other Christmas passages, can easily become like this annual Christmas time incantation, right? It's this thing that we say at Christmas time, on ye, O land of Zebulun and Naphtali, like anyone knows who that really is and what they're really talking about, right? And so we recite this each year 
and it gives these different references. But what does it actually mean? And oftentimes it's recited in order to create this feeling of nostalgia because it's Christmas and this is what we do at Christmas. We say things that we don't understand. And this is what we do. And there's other passages that we recite that we don't understand either. And so often this passage is given and we rarely maybe don't comprehend what's being said or we don't, worse, maybe it's just being denied or people just outright ignore what is going on. And I think one of the reasons why our culture and maybe us at times, a bit more broadly, why we use these passages as an incantation or to evoke memories of nostalgia is because too often we look at Christmas time as the time of year to escape from the challenges of life. That we want Christmas, and when we think of Christmas time, we think of it to be this, you know, we want it to be this Norman Rockwell painting where everyone gathers around with the roast beast on the Christmas dinner table and everyone is joyfully singing Christmas carols in their home. And it is this time that really never occurs, right? But we want it to be this way, and so we, we oftentimes look to Christmas to kind of be an escape, to be an escape from the challenges that we're facing, an escape from the struggles of our life. And then we come to the passages of Scripture. And Scripture gives a very different picture. Because as Christians, what we celebrate at Christmas is not escape from reality, not an escape from the darkness in our lives, but what we celebrate is that light has come into the darkness. That there is real hope, and real joy, and a real light that comes in the midst of our struggles. And when you look at Scripture, in nearly every passage that is a classic Christmas passage, biblically is set in the midst of immense struggle, and immense heartache, and immense turmoil, and an immense, immense darkness. Certainly the case here in Isaiah chapter 9. But it's true with nearly all the other famous Christmas passages, such as the birth of Jesus, which also corresponds with the slaughtering of infants. We tend to focus on one and not really focus on the other. But Scripture puts these two things together in every one of these famous passages. And the reason what we, that we celebrate is that there is, is that the reason that we celebrate is because Jesus is the light. That the world is a dark place, but Jesus is the light who comes into our darkness. We've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, Ryan focused on how, uh, how the light of the gospel enters into the darkness of disappointment. Talking about how the worship of God brings us into the light so that we can see clearly. Last week, Day spoke on how the light of faith enables us to rejoice when all that we see is darkness. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, this text urges us that in the midst of the darkness, that we would be a people who consistently and regularly step towards the light. Why? Because, Scripture makes perfectly clear, there is deep darkness. There's deep darkness in our world. Verse 2 tells us, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The 
Hebrew here for these words here is speaking of a darkness that is choking, a darkness that is suffocating, that is a, a blackout darkness. In the different translation that we read in our call to worship, it speaks of those who have dwelt, walked in darkness, those who dwell in the shadow of death, a darkness that is paralyzing and overcomes you. It's not hard to describe many ways that this darkness gets expressed in our world. You can look at our national picture and the darkness that is occurring in our country, whether that's in our government, whether that's in uh, the way that people are being treated, whether that's issues of immigration, whether that's issues of racism, whether that's issues of, of life and, um, and the unborn. Many different ways. You can look at globally and the genocide and the and the famines and wars that are going on around our globe. You can look at it in our own community. My neighbor across the street, diagonally across the street, 50-some-odd years old, just was put on hospice, might not make it to Christmas, two kids. And you can look around this, right? It's not hard to see the darkness around us. And then there's the darkness that comes through our own wrongs, and tragedies, whether those are tragedies that are done to us, whether they're done around us, whether they're, not, whether they're done by us. And that only begins to speak of the internal turmoil of anger and confusion and embarrassment and shame and guilt that goes on, right? So there's, there's lots of ways to describe the darkness that's around us. But there is a deeper darkness in this world than any of those. There is a deeper darkness that is more suffocating and more paralyzing, and more disorienting. And in order to understand this deeper darkness that Scripture speaks of, we first have to understand something about bubbles. Bubbles. I feel like Dory should pop up. You see, bubbles, if you're learning to scuba dive, one of the challenges in scuba diving is that it's very easy to become disoriented. Um, whether that's because you're at a depth where there's not a whole lot of light, whether that's because of the currents that are moving through, um, whether that's because you're in an overhang or a cliff or a cave, or there's a, you're in a shipwreck of some sort. And so if you're training to be a diver, one of the things that is, is beat into your head repeatedly is if you're ever in doubt, if you're ever in trouble, the thing that you need to do is you need to follow your bubbles. You need to locate your bubbles, follow your bubbles, because bubbles always go up. Even if the current's going sideways, bubbles still find their way. They still find their way to go up. And so if you're disoriented and you don't know what to do, just follow your bubbles. Some years ago, I was diving, and um, we had done several dives, and we had decided that we were going to go on a night dive. And on this night dive, we had planned that after we had swam around for a little while, that we were going to go sensory deprivation, and we were going to turn out our lights, and we were, our goal, I think, was to make it for five minutes. We were going to time it because it's really, really disorienting. And so we, 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 we went on a dive. We were down about 35 feet or so at night, in the middle of the night, and we go lights out. And immediately when this happens, there is a darkness that surrounds you and overwhelms you because it is night and you're 35 feet under water, right? And so it is completely pitch black. And the first thing that happens is you, the only sense that you're aware of is, is sound. And so you hear your mask breathing. Right? 
Darth Vader at 35 feet down, right? Yeah? Yeah. You hear your mask. And then the second thing that I heard was urchins, sea urchins. And the reason for that was because when you're diving and your lights are on, you can see the urchins that have come out at night and the urchins feed on the coral. And with your other senses, you can locate where the sound is coming from. But without your sight anymore, you can't locate the sound. And the sound all of a sudden starts coming at you from every which direction. And you cannot tell where it's coming from. So there is just this surround sound of coming at you from all over over the place. The next thing that happens is that you've also lost your sense of touch. And the reason for that is because we were diving in warm water. You had a wetsuit on. And with that, you were virtually at your body temperature. And when you're virtually at your body temperature, I mean, you could feel if you got stabbed, but you really couldn't feel things. So you've lost your sight. You've lost, you can't taste anything, I'm exception breathing. You've got sound. You can't feel anything. And then the other thing that happens is that you can't tell which way your body is oriented. And the reason for that is because you're neutrally buoyant, you've got your weight belt on, and you're perfectly suspended in the water. And so what that means is that you can rotate 180 degrees this way, and it feels like you're rotated 180 degrees this way or this way. Whichever way you are, you have lost the ability to orient yourself in, in space. And so what happens then is that in the midst of this, you can't, you can't tell which way's up, you can't feel anything, you can't see anything, you just have this sound of, of crunching that's going on all around you, and it's in completely disorienting to not even know, literally not even know which way is up. And so it becomes to get confusing as you're getting disoriented, and then you have this, this, this panic response that starts to kick in to try to figure out which, where you are and, and, and how, how to orient yourself. And at that point, that's when your training kicks in. And when your training kicks in, the first thing that you, have, that you do is you say, look for your bubbles, but you can't see them, right? You, you can't see them, you can't feel them, completely disoriented, and you can't see the bubbles because you're in such deep darkness. You see, there is a, the deepest darkness in this world. It's not when people are dealing with problems. Because whether individually as a group of people, as a nation, as a society, I mean, we're actually pretty decent at identifying our problems. And we can take them and we can consider them. We can, you know, we may be able to analyze them incessantly. We may be able to, to anal, analyze them completely accurately. But the deepest darkness is not knowing your problems, but it is knowing your problems and not being able to see the bubbles, right? It is the knowing your problems and not being able to see a solution or even orient yourself to a position where there is a solution. And the Jews in this passage, as Isaiah is speaking to them, They were living, dwelling in a land of deep darkness. They were living in a time when people were looking for a solution to their problems and to their struggles in their life. They looked to different religions. They looked to different political leaders. They hoped that their political leaders would make good treaties with foreign countries. They, at times, looked to their friends, or they decided to live a life of moral discipline as if that would be the solution. And when that wasn't the solution, they then swung to the other side and decided to go into a life of moral experimentation. 
And then all of these things, what happened was that they just found themselves plunged into a deeper darkness with no bubbles and no solution before them. And it is to them and to us that God declares in Scripture that there is light in the darkness. That's what it tells us in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Well, what is this light? Who is this light? You look at your text, if you follow along, and see this in verse 2. Verse 3, it goes on about multiplying the nations and increasing the joy. Okay, that's not the light. Verse 4, there's a yoke of burden, shoulder, a rod of an oppressor. They're getting broken, as on the day of Midian, whatever that means, right? Verse 5 says, uh, you know, for every boot of the tramping warrior. Okay, that's, that's not quite it. What is this light? It tells us in verse 6, here is the light. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is this light that has come? It is a child. A child who is the light, who is the Wonderful Counselor. That is the one whose counsel is unfailing in the depths of wisdom, who always has the best ideas, that means that this light is never disoriented. It's never fumbling in the darkness trying to find the bubbles, but rather is a, the wonderful counselor who correctly understands every problem, but not only understands it, but actually is the solution to every problem. He is the light of wisdom, the wonderful counselor. He is the light who is the Mighty God, the one who, whose power and strength is so great that he can absorb all the evil that is hurled at him until there is none left to hurl at him. That the mighty God is able to do everything, good, everything that he intends to do. Verse 12, 4 describes it. He's the one who shatters, he is the one who shatters the darkness. Shatters oppression. The mighty God who is the one who is the light who crushes the abuser, crushes the tyrant, who obliterates the dictator, who conquers those who would misuse their power for selfish gain or for the oppression of other people. He is the one, as verse 5 tells us, he is the one who makes conflict cease. We get this really dramatic image of every boot of the tramping warrior of a soldier in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood. Favorite Christmas image, right? Favorite Christmas image. <laughs> like you lay those on your table. Um, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is the text saying? It's saying that this mighty God is the one who comes, who conquers all of his foes, so much so that every instrument of war, every piece of war, the only thing that will happen to them is that they will be gathered together to be put in the bonfire to celebrate the victory of Christ. And this same mighty God is also the everlasting Father, the one who is the light of love and peace, the light of love and relationship, the light who loves you better than the best father in this world ever could. He is the everlasting Father who is everything that the worst Father in this world is not. 
He is the light of wisdom, the light of power, the light of love, and the light of relationships. He is the Prince of Peace, that is, the one who makes defiance and rebellion and conflict pointless. He is the Prince of Peace whose peace comes and will expand. Verse 7 tells us that of the increase of his government and of his peace, of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. Righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. That he is the light who comes to eradicate darkness. His kingdom will perpetually increase. What that means is that if you're in his kingdom, there will never be a moment when you say, ah, we've seen it all, been there, done that. Every new moment will be better than the moment before. He is the light of peace. Given this picture, the light of wisdom, the light of power, the light of love, the light of relationship, the light of peace, is there any darkness into which this light does not shine? Is there any problem to which this light is not the solution? No way. But it often doesn't feel that way, does it? It often doesn't seem so clear, does it? That in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the confusion, for many of us, life feels a whole lot more disorienting. It feels like we're in darkness and we can't see our bubbles. And so there are these two realities that the text puts out there. There is the reality that there is dark darkness and that there is light in the darkness. What this means is you take these two things. What this means is that you have a choice to make. It means you have a choice to make. You see, for the Jews, at the time that they received this prophecy, for them, the light that Isaiah was talking about was, a, was seen as a light in the distance. It was a, a meteor over a hillside. It, it was a light like, like a lighthouse through a thick fog. It, it, was, it was a light cresting, light cresting on the horizon. And so for the people of God at this time, is that they looked forward to a day when this child would be born, when this child would, would grow, when this child would be deliver, would deliver them, and that the kingdom would expand from this time forth and forevermore. They were looking forward to the day when this light in the distance would come and illuminate their entire world, but they were not sure when it would occur. So what God says to them is he says, there is a light that has come. There is a light that is coming, and you need to live and act as if it's already occurred. Consider it done. Hebrew scholars are, are quick to note on this passage that it's written in a Hebrew linguistic form called the prophetic perfect. And what that means is that it's written speaking about future events, but it is written in the past tense as if the event has already occurred. So what it is saying, the way that this is written and that they point out, is that it is so certain that this future reality is going to come to pass that it is written as if it has already occurred. And what Isaiah does here, and God speaking through him, is he takes this prophetic perfect, he takes this future reality, 
and he takes it and he inserts it right next to the depth of darkness and he says, you need to consider it as if it is done. Because the light has come into this world so much so you can consider that it's already occurred even though it has yet to occur. More simply put, how, does he, how, how do the people know that God's going to do this? Because in verse 7, he says, says to them, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is this going to come about? God's passion, his purpose will bring it about, and it is his prerogative to do so, and he will do so. What this means for you and for me is that today is that we have greater confidence to believe than Isaiah or the original hearers. Why? Because for us, it's already being fulfilled. For us, it is already happening. You see, Isaiah's prophecy was given in the 8th century B.C., So for eight centuries, the people of God would say, the light is coming, the light is coming, the Messiah is going to come, the Christ is going to come. Hold out hope, it's going to happen. For 800 years, they kept saying, it's going to occur, it's going to occur. But we gather today in 2018, we gather today on this side of Christmas, We gather today on this side of the resurrection from Jesus from the grave. On this side of the outpouring of of his Holy Spirit. So while the Jews would say, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, we say, Christ has come, Christ is coming, and Christ will come again. And we say that with confidence because Christ has already come as he was born in a manger. How do we know it? Because God has guaranteed it, his zeal will accomplish it, and we have been experiencing it. Again, this leaves you with a choice. And it leaves you with a choice to step towards the darkness or to step towards the light. It's actually a choice that we face many times a day. We face it in great things and we face it in small things. We face that choice in how we respond to frustration. We face it in how we love or don't love our family members. We face it in how we love or don't love our extended family members. We face the choice to step into the darkness or to step into the light when how, in how we deal with conflict or don't deal with conflict. And what we do do on the internet and what we don't do on the internet. We face the choice to step into darkness or step into the light, whether we seek to grow in our relationship with Christ or not. There is a choice before you to step towards the darkness or to step towards the light. One weekend, author Paul Tripp recounts that he gave his son permission to spend the weekend at a friend's house. But in the middle of the weekend, Paul received a phone call from the friend's mother telling him that Paul's son was not at her home. You see, her son had felt guilty about covering for Paul's son and confessed to his mom that he was the cover-up. And so one weekend, uh, so on that weekend, after Paul told his wife about their son's deception, Paul said, you know, Luella, that's his wife's name, uh, we need to, he said, I, She said to him, I I think you need to pray about this. He said that she could feel his anger. And he said to her, he said, I I don't think I can pray right now for him. 
And his wife said, I don't mean that you need to pray for him. I mean that you need to pray for you. And so he went to his bedroom and he began to pray. He prayed for God's help. And he says this. And it hit me that because of his love, God had already begun a work of rescue in my son's life. God was the one who pressed in on the conscience of my son's friend, causing him to confess to his mom. God was the one who gave her the courage to make that difficult phone call to me. And God was the one giving me time to get a hold of myself before my son came home. Now, rather than wanting to rip into my son, I wanted to be a part of what this God of grace was doing in this moment of rebellion and deception, in this moment of hurt and disappointment. And so after giving his son a couple hours to relax, Paul asked him if he could talk. And Paul said to his son, do you ever think about how much God loves you? Sometimes, he answered. Do you ever think how much God's grace operates in your life every day? And his son looked up and didn't speak. Do you know how much God's grace was working in your life even this weekend? Who told you? Paul said to him, you have lived your life in the light. You have made good choices. You have been an easy son to parent, but this weekend you took a step towards the darkness. You can live in the darkness if you want. You can learn to lie and deceive. You can use your friends as your cover. You can step over God's boundaries. Or you can determine to live in God's light. And I'm pleading with you, don't live in the darkness. Live in the light. As I turned away, Paul wrote, he said, I heard my son's voice from behind me saying, Dad, don't go. And as I turned around with tears in his eyes, he said, Dad, I want to live in the light, but it's so hard. Will you help me? The light has come. It is coming. And it will come again. Light has come into this world. A child has been born. And darkness will be obliterated. A light has come who is the wonderful counselor, the everlasting God, the, the, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Light has come. Brothers and sisters, step towards the light. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would run to the light and not from it. In great and small ways, Lord, there are different, each of us here is dealing with that struggle with many different challenges. For some of us, Lord, that is an epic battle between light and darkness. But Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us, that you are the God who left your throne in heaven, that you left dwelling in eternal and infinite light, that you left the throne of heaven to enter into the darkness of this world. And you, the light of the world, 
the Son of God, appeared. Lord, you are the light. He saves us from the darkness and the tyranny of hell. You are the light who gives us victory over the grave. You are the light who has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and you have broken the yoke of the oppressor, and Lord, you have broken the bondage of sin and darkness. So, Lord, thank you for what you have done through Jesus Christ, and Lord, may we, in response to your grace, may we be people who constantly and perpetually and moment by moment be people who step towards the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.